0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: Nice to be here, everybody. So I'm Mark Nunberg, and I just finished teaching a retreat up at Cloud Mountain, that works both with Stillpoint sponsor these talks from time to time, and I've been here a couple times before. It's always really nice to connect with the Portland community. And recently I gave a talk, uh, more of a presentation at IMS, for the staff on money. Chaz De Capua, uh the resident teacher there, um, he sets up a curriculum for the people who are on staff at this big uh, insight meditation center right in the middle of Massachusetts. And uh, it's really a great place. And uh, so they thought, well, let's look at how to relays wisely to money. And I thought it might be a nice topic for tonight. And in a way, money, it's sort of a very interesting experience in our lives. I always thought, like, with a talk like this, it would be great if I were to fumble in my pocket and the big, thick roll of hundred-dollar bills would fall out just accidentally. And just to notice what... Thoughts would arise in our mind, like judgments or "I want that," or I mean it'd be different, but it would really reveal how powerful our conditioning around money is. We have a lot of baggage around money, and because it's such a central part of our lives, it's really good, like any you know good Dharma student, it's really good to unpack experience so that we can actually be intimate, and see what's there, see what we're not seeing. And it probably would reveal, like, how the heart ends up being tight and how the heart might actually be released. I mean, we might think we need to live in a place where there's not money, but that's not going to happen, right? I mean, it might be different, but one way or another, in this realm, being a human being with a body, there are all these issues of power and sexuality and you know, what we have and what we don't have, what we want, what we don't want. It just comes with the territory of being a human being. And in in our culture, of course, there's a real attraction to money. I mean, money sort of represents the promise that the world is here, the world of sense experience, sensuality, the world is here to deliver happiness. And if we're not getting our happiness, we, we feel like somebody, maybe God, but somebody's messing with us. Why? You know, I want to live in Portland. I was sitting in Candle's backyard, beautiful little garden space, patio space, just the right amount of sun, thinking, this is so much better than Minneapolis. <laughs> <laughs> no mosquitoes. I don't know. There's something about the West Coast that's, at least the northwest coast. It's just a little magical, right? But I could probably think of places even better than Portland. (laughs) And it never ends. Like, for sure, I think she needs one of those really thick cedar trees in her backyard. But not blocking too much sun. Just the right amount. And then on and on and on. Like that. And money, in a way, represents this, not always, but often, this wrong idea that the world, the world of experience, the world of sensuality, is really here to make us happy. And if it's not making us happy, it's either that someone's messing with us or that I'm somehow a failure at manipulating, (laughs) gaming the system so that I get what I want. But one way or another, we'll blame if we're not getting... Because this assumption that we should be happy, we should be able to get what makes us happy, is pretty strong, unless someone's messing with us, like the rich people, the 1%, they're messing with us, they're taking more than their fair share. I was, uh, this is a long time ago, I think it was the mid-80s, and I was managing a retreat and there was this Zen teacher, Prabhasa Dharma. she was quite well-known back then, she uh, has died since. She was German and um, kind of in a very austere Zen tradition, wore beautiful, austere robes and being German, and just a brilliant Dharma teacher, really liked her. And uh, we were waiting, because I was managing the retreat, she was there, she was going to give the talk that night, And the main teacher for the retreat was Swami Satchidananda, an Indian man, quite well-known, guru-type, wonderful teacher too, in his own way. Um, He was the one who did the Peace Invocation for Woodstock, some of you might remember. And uh, anyway, this is uh, outside of Santa Barbara, and we're waiting for Swami Satchidananda to arrive, and he drives up in this really nice car. I forget what it was, but it was like, not just an ordinary nice car, but a really nice car. And Prabhasa Roshi Dharma, who's standing next to me, you know, in her sort of austere, simple, clear way, just turns to me and says, is that his car? (laughs) Right? Because it's that, that sort of sense that, okay, a spiritual teacher should not have a nice car like that. Okay, maybe, maybe sort of a nice car, like a, a newer Subaru. (laughs) It's something that has a little bit of a functional vibe to it, but not something that's nice for the sake of being nice, you know, pleasant for the sake of being pleasant, because we have this idea, which I think is really useful to explore, that comfort and really nice things are suspect. And I think that's part of what we can unpack together tonight. It wasn't his car, by the way, it was his, one of his students' car that lent it to him for the time he was out there for retreat. Some of you know about the, the Buddhist realms of existence. And I think this may speak to like different ways of relating uh, to money and to sensuality more generally. I don't know if anybody here knows Ajahn Punadamo. He's a Western Buddhist monk in the Thai forest tradition. He has a hermitage not too far from Minnesota, just across the northeast corner of Minnesota, that little arrowhead point, into Canada, into Ottawa, beautiful little place there. He teaches in Minnesota, down at our center, and also at IMS from time to time. And he recently wrote this thick book, um, on the Buddhist realms of existence. So if you're interested you can check it down on Amazon. I forget what it's called It's self-published on Amazon But you might remember, you know, there's the hell realms, the hunger ghost realms, the animal realms, human realms, the Deva realms Angelic realms and there's sort of in later traditions was a in gods realm which is somewhere between the human realm and the Deva realms and really, I mean, it's who knows about cosmology, but just in terms of understanding our own mind, it's very useful. Because we've all been in hell realms, we've all been hungry ghosts, we've all, in moments, been like animals. I mean, we are an animal, but just a regular, non-complicated animal. And sometimes, fortunately, we're in a deva realm, you know, where things are pretty refined. And the characteristic of a hell realm, like in terms of money and sensuality, is it's hurting so much, we're willing to do anything to get relief, right? We'll spend any amount of money, we'll go into deep debt, even if it doesn't make sense long term, we just don't want to feel what we're feeling, we want out, right? So what do we end up doing then is we just dig the hole deeper and deeper and deeper, and doesn't that sort of characterize hell realms, right? Because when we're really hurting, even forget about money. But when we're really hurting and we don't like it, even like screaming, that doesn't make us feel better. But we do that because it temporarily, you know, on a on a superficial level, gives us a little different a distance from the hurt that we have, or whatever we do. You know how people jump around when they're really hurting, as if that's going to address you know, the toe that they just stubbed. But it distracts them. Or we drink too much. And this sort of is the sort of next level, the hungry ghost level is, it's like we're so attached, so identified with consuming, with gratifying our desire, our appetite, that we never notice any gratification from satisfying our appetite the hunger is always so much bigger than our capacity to gratify. So we never enjoy what we have. Does that sound familiar sometimes? Like when we're eating, and we're more interested in getting the next bite than tasting the food we like. We want to get the next bite in because we know intellectually that we like what we're eating, but we're so into it that we're not actually showing up. Or you're on a vacation, you spend a lot of money, a lot of planning, you're on the vacation, and you're thinking about another vacation, right? You're not actually... so the hunger is consuming the mind, that it even misses the... you know, gratification is something. The Buddha didn't say that there isn't pleasant experience in life, clearly, which is good, because clearly there is the pleasantness of gratification, however, Limited it might be, depending on the experience. But at least it's something. So when we lie down at bed at night after a hard day, there's some pleasure there. It is what it is. It's not more than what it is, but it is isn't. But if I were lying down in the bed and completely missed that experience because I was thinking about a nicer experience, like if only I had one of those crystal beds, I noticed, I don't know where I found it, somebody told me about these beds, these... I think you can even put it on your bed, or you can just sort of... But it has some... I don't know if it's ro- rose quartz or something. Amethyst. Is it amethyst? Yeah. That you lie on and something special happens, I'm sure. <laughs> Have you tried one, Kendall? Oh, what would you think? I,
0: I'm about to think gross body
1: level. <laughs> oh, I see. You're just not refined enough to notice. Well, we're getting there with the Deva realms. <laughs> And Then the animal realms, right? So the animal realms are sort of characterized by not being very wise, just doing the same thing, getting the same result, a mind that's governed by instinct, repeating, not really getting out of the box. And when I was thinking about this in terms of money and just our relationship with sense experience, I remembered um, as a kid we used to go, I grew up in Minneapolis, go up to Paul Bunyan Land or something like that. It was called near the headwaters of the Mississippi, and it's kind of a theme area. But, you know, back in the mid-60s, it wasn't much of anything. There was a big statue of Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox. And they had these cages, um, sad to say, with chickens in them. And uh, if you put a nickel or a dime in the slot, then some music would play. And that would cue the chicken to do some kind of dance or do a backflip. And then after doing that for 10, 15, 20 seconds, a little piece of corn would come down. And that's a little bit like that our animal way of relating to the world of sense experience and the money that buys stuff. It's sort of like we're just on autopilot. We grind away at our job. And then we go blow the money on the weekend, you know, we go party or we go, you know, we'll do whatever we do, and then we start the same thing over again, and we do the same over and over and over like that. And it never occurs to the mind, doesn't really have the mind doesn't really have the capacity to step back and wonder how how am I doing with all this? Is this making me happy? What is this leading to? just to be reflective. Which brings us to the human realm, right? So it's just different mind spaces we exist in at different times in our life. Even one day, you know, we're visiting these realms, right? So the human realm is, there's enough balance, enough comfort, that the mind can be, you know, reflective what's going on here. And that reflectiveness allows the mind to recognize the difference between a skillful way of relating to sense experience and a not-so-skillful way to relate to sense experience. Like being reflective, it kind of allows for a certain morality to come in. Like, oh, I realize when I'm just being stingy about everything, people don't want to be around me, right? And things don't work out so well in my life. And when I'm more generous, you know, people do seem to want to be around me. I feel more like I belong. I'm happier. Right? So that even though my instinct might be, you know, when I was a kid, I grew up in a family of seven kids, and uh, I was right in the middle, and it was like sharing was always, you know, suspect. Will Will you get it back? Or, you know, will you have enough? And, uh, but, you know, to be able to be reflective about, oh, we got each other's back. I'll treat them as I want to be treated, like that golden rule. That's what we, in the Buddhist cosmology, you'd consider a human realm, where we have enough space in our heart and our mind to kind of just get a sense of what's skillful and unskillful where in the animal realm, there's not enough reflectiveness to know the difference between what's skillful and unskillful, that being greedy is a tight way of living. Like uh, Ajahn Amaro, another Western monk, characterized it as, can I eat it? Can it eat me? Can I mate with it? And our mind doesn't go beyond that. You know, it's just like, that's what I'm interested in. And if if those three three things don't register, it's like, not important. If I can't mate with it, eat it, or it will eat me, why am I paying attention? So we just kind of... And that's kind of the animal mentality. And then the human realm is when we have that space, like, there's got to be a better way. Let's work together so the beginning of altruism kindness right there's this potential don't we feel that sometimes right it just makes sense when the mind is reflective it has isn't overwhelmed isn't oppressed so much that it doesn't have that capacity so the earlier three realms the hell realm the hungry ghost realm and the animal realm the mind is just too oppressed by conditions so, it's really limited in how it might choose to live. And then the warring God realms, I mean, we've probably had moments. So, the warring God realm is a pretty nice realm. You know, you got some money, you've got some power in your life, maybe you're attractive, you're healthy, feeling pretty good. But damn it, there are people who are doing better than you bigger cars, nicer bodies. More intelligent, doing better, right? So you don't, you miss your own really nice situation because you're obsessed, you're bothered by the people who have it even better. And you're always trying to get into that country club or, you know, get with those people, be in that crowd, have a car like that, have a place on the Pacific coast. I don't know if people want places on the Pacific coast. But wherever people want places out here in the West, you know, then, then those prestige items, I'm sure there are neighborhoods in Portland or even be able to afford the real estate in Portland. It's like, oh yeah, then you will have made it. And then the Deva realms, you know, they're characterized like the affluence, the comforts, the good fortune as such that it doesn't even occur to you how good it is. It's almost like uh, royalty, you sort of expect it. It's here, been here so long, the comforts. We only hang out with other people who are really comfortable. It just feels, oh yeah, this is exactly how it should be. There's no sense of, like, oh, those people over there. So there's a kind of delusion. You wouldn't even talk about money. Oh. You know, it's kind of I give the example of of I fortunately I haven't had to do this much in the twenty six years of Kamgar Meditation Center. And we have, you know, we own our building in the city and we have a retreat property that we're developing out of town a little bit, eighty three miles out of town. But we've really been low key about fundraising. We don't really You know, we operate everything's just by donation. Even our residential retreats, we don't charge for. And uh, but there was one time we had a long-time sort of benefactor, and he came from a family of uh, some wealth, and had mentioned you know a while back, you know, just come see me sometime if you you know need some help with this project. That's when we were looking for to buy a building in the city we had just been renting up until that point. And uh, it was just really interesting. Like, so I, you know, I went Skyrise in downtown Minneapolis, went to his office, and we're just sitting there. And you know, I didn't know what to do, <laughs> but he had said, you know, come see me. So you know, I was just talking about what we're up to at the center and how the search for the uh, the uh, city center was going. And but we didn't talk about money at all. It's like I I got the vibe immediately. Like, oh yeah, you don't you don't talk about money here. You know, it's, and uh, just it's just sort of interesting that sort of Deva realm where we're living with the affluence, but we don't really want to own like what that involves, on whose back. What are the causes and conditions that needed to happen for that kind of affluence, that kind of comfort to be there. And you know, we're there some of the time. I mean certainly relative to the wider world, we're there maybe all the time in that place. Because it's just really nice when we're comfortable and we live in a quiet neighborhood and you know we we can get the temperature the way we like it and amazing entertainments just a few inches away from us usually. And all of that, we don't really want to know. The vaccine, you know what uh, what it all took. Just even on the level, like, what are the consequences for the planet, or what are the consequences for the less privileged people on the planet, or other species on the planet. And again, it's it's not about pathologizing sensuality or pathologizing money, but just getting to know the mind and like i was saying earlier how you know because we're handling money or avoiding handling money but one way or another we can learn a lot about the condition of the mind by just seeing how we relate to power and money and these sort of symbols of sensuality symbols of the the world and in particular to look at the thing that i mentioned early what is the mind's uh, fundamental relationship with sense-experience, the comforts of the world, food, shelter, relationship, body. How does mind relate? It's my right, those things are my right, oh, I don't deserve those things, it's not fair, I deserve more, I have too much, I feel guilty. And again, this is the great thing about the basic practice of mindful awareness, wisdom awareness, is it's not about judging it, it's just about unpacking it, deconstructing, seeing how it works, and seeing in that whole dynamic, in particular something as rich as money, how suffering arises in our heart, and how we set in motion suffering around us, complicit in the suffering around us, and how it might be possible to be in this messy world of power and sex and affluence and poverty and oppression and injustice, how to be in the world, engaged, not feeling like my heart, my mind is needs to be contaminated, by the meanness, by the messiness, right? Isn't that what we want? Because we probably, all of us in different ways, have experimented with, get me the hell out of here. You know, the world's a mess. I don't want to feel like I'm in, in any way responsible or a part of this. And And that's its own... You know, the Buddha even talks about that as one of the three ty- types of craving. We crave for comfort and sense pleasure. We crave to become somebody, which is just another flavor of wanting something. And we crave to be done with it. When we've been frustrated enough times by not getting what we want, or realizing what happens when we get what do we want, then we just want to be out of it. Oh this is a mess. I can't even keep what I get anyway, right? In a way it's sort of interesting how it works sometimes when we do our practice and you know, just become a good student of the heart, of the mind. And we develop our ethical conduct, and we develop our generous heart, and we develop the stability of awareness, and we just become more skillful. And it's just interesting how, that you can't guarantee it, but how things kind of, what's that line in the Bible, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all else will be added unto you, or something like that, does that sound familiar? And it's a little bit that way generally, I think, um over time, that good things can come and then that gets confusing. It's like I as a young adult in my early twenties, you know, I got interested in the Dharma, Buddhism, and meditation practice. And so for many years um, you know, I was just getting by because I was Making choices to be able to do my practice more than earn a lot of money. And then now, you know, I'm in my early 60s and I've actually become middle class, which is sort of unusual. And now I actually have savings. I'm actually like a normal person, or I don't know about normal people, but I'm a person who actually is putting money away for retirement. And it just feels strange. Like that's a problem that affluence, right? My wife and I, we bought the place that Khamigong was in, the building, it's an old storefront, and then eventually Khamigong had its act together enough it could buy a building back, (coughs) don't know, what it was about, uh, almost 15 years ago. And we kept the original building and sort of turned it into like a single-family dwelling now. And so we got a house, which we paid off, And we have some money in the bank and we don't have kids, you know? And it's sort of like that responsibility now, oh, I have to be responsible, like, how much is enough? How much is too much? When does that retirement become too much? It's like a real um, responsibility power is. You might remember that line from Martin Luther King, um, I wrote it down here so I wouldn't forget. Power without love is reckless and abusive. Because money's a kind of power, right? Power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. So it's, I think it's appropriate to aspire both on a, a kind of, a, on the level of the heart, like to want power in our practice, like stability of awareness. That's a kind of power. Concentration, samadhi, we call it in the tradition. Health is a kind of power, like that vitality of a body that's healthy and in decent shape, into, uh, sort of being, uh, smart, intellectually. That's like a power. Being beautiful, having physical beauty, is a power to use or abuse. Right? Same with wealth, same with other kinds of privilege. Being a white man is a power to either abuse or not, or to be oblivious. Often that kind of goes with the territory of having privilege is not thinking we have privilege. And so it's really, uh, so this is the thing, that when we do get our act together, not it's not like an immediate reflex, but as we get our act together as a human being, paying attention, understanding just the basics, like in Buddhism we call it karma, understanding the basics of how things work, what's skillful, what's unskillful, how to plant seeds that lead to wholesome results, how to avoid... Planting seeds that lead to unwholesome results, like drinking too much, or spending more money than we have, or hanging out with friends that lead us down the wrong road, right? When we stop doing those things and start hanging out with the other friends who help us develop really useful habits and, you know, do these other things, then good things start happening. We start having more power. We start having more money, because we're not wasting it. We start looking better, because we're living a healthier life, and little by little. And, you know, if you buy into Buddhist cosmology, if you die, you get reborn in a better place, with more privilege, more good fortune. I don't know about that, but but I keep an open mind about how these things work, just because I know that I don't know, so why pretend I do know? Right? And the question is, with all of these sort of cos, you know, teachings around cosmology, it's like, um, is it a good story? Is it a helpful story? Not whether it's metaphysically true, but is it a helpful story? Does it uh, help me be a better human being now? These stories. That's really how I think uh, the Buddha was really pragmatic in that way. He wasn't actually, in you know, early Buddhism the this person we refer to as the Buddha, there wasn't a lot of metaphysical stuff in his teachings. He was really addressing the subjective experience of suffering in our heart, how it arises, how it can cease. And the thing is, about power, about money, is it can amplify the defilements, amplify the tendencies, They are in the mind. We see them more clearly, right? It's like some of the political leaders and other leaders, you know, we go, oh my God, you know, how can it be this way? Well, what would we look like if we had a lot of power, a lot of celebrity, right? What would get expressed? How neurotic might we become? I have a lot of humility about that. You know, because it's really relatively easy. Because, you know, when you don't have a lot of power, you have to be, we have to behave ourselves. But when we have a lot of power, it's a lot easier. It's like when you're with kids, you're the adult with kids, you know? You you, you like the idea of democracy and like consensual decision making and like, Using things as a teaching, a moment of teaching. But at some point, I was a teacher for a while. At some point, it's like, I'm bigger than you are. (laughs) This is what's going to happen. Right? Well, that's not so different than what goes on with corporations and political leaders. It's like, I got the power. We're going to do it this way. And if you don't like it, go somewhere. Just, you know, but this is how we're doing it here. We're like that in relationships. Like if, if the sense—I mean, often our relationships are the same sort of business relationship, our business way of relating. And it's sort of like if we feel we have the upper hand, like this person needs the relationship more than I do. Okay, then, then we do it this way, right? And that doesn't mean we're conscious of that, but that. But it 's really interesting to sort of look or somebody at the office who might really want to go to lunch with you really want to sort of have your affection or whatever your friendship, and that gives us some power doesn't it? And so what do we do with that power? How do we use the power that comes to us, even with our pets, right which is sort of an interesting thing because. They're a little bit like emotional slaves. And uh, we treat them nicely when they do what they're supposed to do. Or when they do what they're not supposed to do, they have to be cute, right? (laughs) And if they're not cute, I mean, this is, I mean, it's funny, but it's really serious. I mean, this is one of those things that we're oblivious to. Like, how many then get dropped off? And of those that get dropped off, how many actually find families to live with? So going back to, you know, dealing living in a world where there is power, power differentials, money, sense experience. And there's this ongoing debate, not just in Buddhism, but in, I think, a lot of spiritual traditions, like, where, cause one thing we know, it doesn't take that much reflectiveness to know that we suffer in that world a lot. So then the obvious thing would be, well, why am I, why is it so hard? Is it that I'm sensitive? Is that the problem? Like, if only I wasn't sensitive. If only I didn't feel things. Or is, that, is it that in my circumstances, the things that are showing up that I am sensitive to, that's the problem. I don't have the right experiences to be sensitive to. So when we're suffering around wealth, around money, around privilege, around power, around comfort, what's the problem? that I feel things deeply, and so when I don't have what I want, I feel badly, or when I do have what I want, but I feel guilty, is that the problem? It's the feeling, or is what is it what's showing up? So there's a time, one of the few suttas, where uh, the layperson is sort of the wise one in the crowd. This is this uh, layperson named Chitta, and he'd like to go visit the monks after they had their one meal of the day, and they would sometimes take some time to talk about practice after they're done eating, and he was listening to this group of monks discussing this exact thing, like, is the problem that the eye is sensitive to sights, or is the problem the sights that I'm seeing? Is the problem that my skin, my body is sensitive to touch, or is it that the touches that I have that i got to fix? They were having this debate, and they knew that Chitta knew a few things about the practice, so they asked him to weigh in. What do you think? And so Chitta gave him the example of two ox yoked together, you know, tied together, or they have that wooden yoke. And he said to the monks, would it be right to say that the black ox is a fetter to the white, or the white is a fetter to the black ox? And they know, no, it's not that... One ox is a problem to the other. The problem is that they're tied together. That's what's oppressive for the two oxen, is that what you say? Oxen? and uh, and and so Chitta said just so, right? It's not that we're sensitive human beings, and it's not the problem isn't the particular sense experiences that are showing up for us. The problem for us, the real cause for suffering, is whatever it is that arises in conjunction when we're sensitive to sense experience. So you might think my problem is I'm aware of the differentials of wealth. If only I was oblivious, I wouldn't suffer. Or you might think, no, no, it's not that I'm aware, it's that I don't have the right amount of wealth. Or, Maybe a more wise person might realize, actually, the real problem comes in no matter what I, whatever power or wealth I have, <coughs> and whether I'm sensitive, the problem is what arises when I'm sensitive, when I experience power. No power, or a lot of power, or social power. What arises in that? Am I in a hell realm? when I'm aware of power, money? Am I in a hungry ghost realm, an animal realm, kind of an ignorant realm, a human realm, a warring god realm, a deva realm? Or is the mind wise? Oh, it's just this. It's just this. It's just power. Money is just power. And the question is, like, how can we dance with our conditions, our circumstances? In a way, how can we make something beautiful, free? Maybe like a little bit more viscerally, how can we live frictionlessly in a world of money, in a world of privilege, in a world of comfort, wherever we might be in any given moment along the spectrum? Really nice comforts, very little comfort. A lot of power, very little power. Real beauty, not so much beauty, lots of privilege, very little privilege. What does a way of being, a way of navigating, a way of dancing look like so that wherever we are in any moment, something beautiful in the sense of free, not tight, in terms of our own heart, that's what gets expressed? cuz you know otherwise we we tend to do it more top down like we have an idea of what freedom looks like and i've noticed like in the last i don't know what it's been now but almost 10 years there's sort of been a thing about these extreme minim- minimalists i don't know if you've seen there's several books written it seems i don't know if this is really true but it seems that a lot of them have been new yorkers you know and and i always get the sense that like they're looking for some gimmick that will allow them to write a book that some publisher will publish. So it's sort of like, okay, can I get myself down to 37 things or something like that? And they do this sort of year long adventure or whatever it is, and then they write about it. Um, like only one pair of pants and two shirts and, you know, a cell phone usually and a few things like that. And then that's it. One pot and one plate and one cup and. But that can be just uh, as much of a gross, heavy attachment as having, you know, a beautiful home in Portland. You know, one of perfectly fixed up. I looked at uh, last year. I, I went to Phil's house. He's got this amazing native plant garden. You know, so you have just like the right, all the right ethics in how you've chosen every part of your house and every plant in your yard. It can be just perfect, right? And it either can be a hell realm or it can just be another thing in the forest, just another thing in your life that you're not afraid of. You're not afraid of the beauty or the limitation of your conditions. And you're not attached, you're not dependent on it. And it's really a question of, like, what are you setting in motion? So if you buy a nice car, what is that setting in motion? What kind of seeds are you planting in your heart and in the world? And are those the kind of seeds you want to be planting in your heart and in the world? And if you're an extreme minimalist, what kind of seeds are you planting in your heart and in the world? It could be like big ego trip. That's what you're planting. That's what you're setting in motion. Like being better than someone else, because I don't need as much as you. And that's your own sort of version of elitism. And you use your minimalism to look down upon the people who have, you know, whatever, more than you. How dare you? How could you? So that's the, you know, in a way, people find it easier, you know, learning about non-attachment when we don't have a little. And then, as if to, you know see if we really learned a thing or two, then we might have some power, right? And then we realize we haven't learned as much as we thought. I mean, there's countless stories of Buddhist teachers and other spiritual teachers who presumably have learned a thing or two, and then they get put into positions of power, and they misuse their sexuality, or they misuse their wealth, or they misuse their power in one way or another. It's almost endemic. not just in spiritual circles, of course, but it it's a little bit more shocking that it happens in those circles. And what do we make of that? Well, it's not easy having a healthy, wise, deeply wise relationship with power and money. And being afraid of it doesn't take us off the hook, right? We're just postponing the learning. That's all. That doesn't mean we should be grubbing for money, but when it naturally comes to us, when it's available to us, we should see if we can dance with it, do something beautiful with it, so that it doesn't leave any trace in our heart and plant seeds that minimize... Alleviate suffering for ourselves and others. Shine away from power, right? It's sort of like, I mean, you could take the power and then give it to somebody who knows what to do with it, right? So that's one thing you can do with power, with money. So even if you don't know what to do with it, you might have enough clarity to suspect somebody who might know what to do with it more than you do. And it's just, you know, it's this whole world of sensuality. You know, we have to remember we have, I wish I knew how many millions of years, but since when life began on this planet, presuming that, you know, the stories we have about evolution are somehow line up with things. But, you know, if you've studied embryology, all of that conditioning from being a single cell whatever in some gooey ocean to fish and crawl creepy crawlers and dinosaurs I mean basically life eating life survival that all of that that conditioning there is there in the sort of development of this body mind right so that That is hardwired in all that evolutionary history of grasping of struggling of getting of eating and fearing and killing and so it's it's no wonder that when we have affluence, power, money, it's triggering all of that we immediately i mean it's just so interesting. Just when you're driving, when we're driving, we see the person, because we'll see them a couple hundred meters before we get to the corner where the person's asking for money. Really use that. That's like a valuable, that's as valuable as going on a retreat, a Buddhist meditation retreat, to be very honest and clear about all of the qualities that arise in your mind as you drive up. And then, of course, inevitably the light changes and you end up right next to the person. Right? And just to look at the sort of fear. Like if I give a dollar now, what I do is I keep uh, like cliff bars. You know what cliff bars are? I keep a bunch. Because I found that it didn't feel good to give a dollar, but it didn't feel good not to give a dollar. So I had to figure out something that where I could actually have a relationship, however brief, <coughs> with a person, so that after the relationship was done, I didn't feel like I had a residue in my heart. In, and hopefully that person had a better residue in that interaction too than they might have had. But it's still, even with that strategy, didn't, it's still a confusing and interesting and difficult experience to notice all of this sort of reptilian, like my horde, my money, my stuff, get your own stuff, right? That sort of attitude, it's there, I see it each time. You know, and then it's sort of like the more human realm stuff, like, no, 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 we've got to share, you could have ended up like that, you know? So all this sort of different things play out. Like, oh, you didn't spend this money because... You're saving up for something good, and this is a threat to that strategy to get what you want. Because we can't really, it doesn't make sense, on some level, on some intuitive level, it doesn't make sense what we have, like whatever affluence or comforts we have. We can't really justify it. And we know that on some level. So it's not like when... The problem is when you have a fixed view that the mind is using as a defense from feeling the ambiguity of the whole situation. And what I'm inviting, and I think the Buddha might invite us to do, is like learn that it's possible to be intimate with that ambiguous feeling, the strange feeling, like when we have relative affluence and comfort to get comfortable with that strange feeling, like not to pretend that we deserve what we have and not to pretend we don't deserve what we have, right? Sounds like the middle way. Because fixed views are always a problem. And we're just going to live a much more interesting life when we're not presuming that I don't deserve what I have or presuming... I do deserve what I have. We're just going to, in that ambiguity, in that not knowing, the way we relate to all these issues around money and power are just going to be more interesting. Because we won't have a pat answer that then we impose on the world. So, no, no, this is right, this is fair, this is just. As opposed to, I don't know what just is, I really don't. And then it's much more moment to moment. Let me try this. And then let me continue to be aware. And I'll notice, right? Because in Buddhism, morality, knowing what's skillful and unskillful can only be known with wisdom awareness, right? Because if we are have some continuity of awareness and then we interact in some way where we're, you know, what we might call stingy or where we or what we might call generous, then whether that whatever we did was skillful or not, we'll only know if we continue to be aware and notice what gets left over. Because by definition, unskillful is when what's left over is a cause for suffering. That's what it means to do something unwholesome, unskillful, is we've planted seeds of suffering. How do we know? I see it, I feel it. Right? It's right here. It's not theoretical, it's not abstract, and it's for us to know. I mean, maybe some sensitive people might have a sense of whether you're doing something skillful or unskillful, but actually only you will really know. You can't always tell from the outside what's going on. Only the person themselves, if they're aware, can have a sense. It's not what we think got left behind the impression on the heart. It's what we actually experience there, that impression. Because in the next mind moment, this mind then was conditioned by whatever I did before. So if I was stingy, if I was unskillful in some way, that act of being stingy, greedy, left an impression. That impression then conditions the next moment. That's how the mind happens, one moment at a time, each mind conditioning the next mind, the mind stream, right? So then, now I'm the one who did that stingy thing, or I'm the one who did that generous thing, and I get to live out of that mind for a moment. And this is the kind of mind I want to live out of, the mind that has this impression in it. And like that one moment at a time, depending how we're dealing with this wild world of sensuality, of privilege and oppression, and wealth and poverty, we're leaving this trail right, of impressions. And then we're, in a sense, condemned to live with that heart, that mind, out of that heart and mind. And so this is both really empowering, like we're not doomed. And regardless of our circumstances, there is a way to plant really wholesome seeds in each moment, even if we're in a hell realm, really difficult realm. There's that interesting story. I don't know where it came from, if it's in the suttas or rose after the time of the Buddha. There's a lot of myth or legend or whatever wrapped into these previous lives of the Buddha, the Jataka tells, and... Uh, and one, you know, story about one of the previous life lives of the Buddha to be was he was in hell, a hell realm, right? And there's, there's In the tradition, you know, the, there's, all, there's the pointy hell realms where things are really sharp and the hot hell realms where things are really hot, kind of like in our Christian tradition, the fires of hell. And there's the icy hell realms and I forget how many hell realms there are, but they're, they talk about a lot of different ones. Anyway, the Buddha was in one of the bad ones. The Buddha to be it was in one of the bad ones. And remember, when you're in a hell realm, you'll do anything for a little relief. That's what characterizes the hell realm. So he's in a hell realm and it's, you know, the sort of proverbial <clears throat> walking through fire, pulling a heavy cart, which are other miserable beings, with some demonic being whipping you to go faster, something like that. And the person next to him falls <coughs> and he stops to help. And immediately can't be in hell anymore because that's not something someone in hell does. Right? <laughs> they're trying to not feel the pain. They don't wanna get whipped. Right? So then you can't be in hell. You behave like that, you can't be in hell. Right? That's the trick. Right? So we know that trick because sometimes we're in a hell realm. And if you have a wise friend, they're gonna to say to you, well, maybe go do something nice for someone. You go, What do you mean, do something nice? I'm suffering here, don't you? But it's really good magic, good medicine. It's like, Who can you go help? You're feeling like nothing matters, you're really hurting, right? And it's just funny how that really works. Go cook something for somebody, call somebody you haven't called in a while, you know, put bird seed in the bird feeder. I mean, really simple things. But you have to be present, you actually have to feel the impression of that act of generosity, that act of kindness. Because then you can't be the oh-poor-me person. You're the person like who is seeing like, oh, this is nice, may you be happy, may this make you happy, Uh, your happiness makes me happy, I care about your well-being. Well, that's a totally different realm of existence. Then the, oh poor me, this isn't fair, why me? There's an Indian poet from several centuries ago, Kabir, maybe you've heard of him, he's quite well known. And this is one of his poems. Kabir says, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe." But I noticed one day the cloth was well woven, so I brought some burlap. but I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pull back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. Kabir says, listen, my friend, there are few that find the path. Because it's really tricky, this path. And, you know, I I think, and I don't think it's the Buddha's fault, but I think over the centuries there's grown, especially in early Buddhism, this sort of dismissal of the world of sense experience. Like, if only there weren't this world of sense experience, then I could be free. It's kind of like saying, like, if only things weren't so nice. It's not my problem that I'm tight. It's that there's so many nice things. If only there weren't attractive people, you know, that caused me to lust. If only... And, right? But that's it's just sort of crazy, because... The world is really that we need the world—the world of good, pleasant, beautiful experience—and the world of horrific experience. We actually need that to reveal, to discover the heart that's not afraid of the horror or the beauty that doesn't get tight, doesn't cling when it's difficult or when it's easy, or. When we get good at those two extremes, you know what tends for most of us to be most difficult? The neutral. really throws us for a loop. Buddhists generally get, first and foremost, we get pretty good about the difficult experience, like pain in the body, because it, it gets our attention. And we have a lot of incentives to learn how to handle difficult experience. And then when we get some basic competence dealing with physical pain and emotional pain and other difficult experience things start to work better in our life and then we feel like a a ranked beginner again like what do i do with joy what do i do with success and it's like really we're beginners again and we get over time careful sincere practice we get where joy and other pleasant you know the Eight worldly wins, gain and loss, so the positive side, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. So the praise, the fame, the success, the pleasure, we get good at seeing, well, that's just what that is. It's not, not something, right? Gratification, the good stuff, it is something. In Buddhism, we don't somehow pretend that that, Positive side of life isn't something. It is something. But it's not more than what it is. It's just what it is. It's that pleasant or that beautiful experience being known. And we don't, it's not the story of the beautiful experience being known, because the story, that's just thinking being known. That's actually not the beautiful experience. The beautiful experience is that sunset, the actual visual experience, or the lightness of the body when. The concentration is good and the body feels light and energetic, not twisted steel. But it's just that experience being known. So we don't make the horrific experience about me, it's the pain, not my pain, and we don't make the beautiful experience about me either. It's just another thing in the forest, it's just the next thing and it's really liberating to and we need the world precisely because this is where the liberation is and in more sort of meditative terms it's like getting intimate with feeling tone the pleasantness and unpleasantness and neutrality of feeling tone and i was going to say that neutrality is even more challenging in some ways and it kind of we get more and more of it as our we get more momentum in our practice and just that evenness, that calm, that equanimity. But initially it's it's kind of confusing, because we're used to the intensity of things being difficult or pleasurable. And now more and more often it's just sort of, yeah, it's just what it is. And there's a very deep habit of, well, if it's just what it is, if it isn't intensely unpleasant or pleasant, I guess I don't need to be here. Because my job is to deal with the pleasant or the pleasant and the unpleasant. But if it's neutral, I can go to sleep. I can check out. And to learn how to be to really show up with neutral and uh be free, like be intimate and free. Just like we do with the pleasurable and the unpleasant. And for some of us that is the most challenging. I remember as a a kid thinking, like, that would be the worst, to be ordinary, right? Be middle class, right? A little overweight, you know? I, I mean, this is a kind of thought, like an insurance salesman. I hope there's no insurance salesman in that. <laughs> but for me, it was like, I remember like having a deep fear in like my teen years of being ordinary. That would be the worst thing. But I see it now like I kind of I'm sort of ordinary. I mean, it's a li- especially these days. You know, teaching Buddhism has kind of become ordinary. It wasn't ordinary <laughs> when I got into Buddhism, but now it's kind of more ordinary. Teaching mindfulness is sort of like on every on every corner, almost. But but just this like being middle class, living in a kind of a nice, you know, nice kind of neighborhood, and a car, a partner, a cat you know we take vacations and we stay in little cabins on a big lake you know and it's just like yeah just that uh what do we do with that are we cuz i feel like i have that habit like oh no no it's got to be dramatic and we bring that into our spiritual practice too like we like the fireworks it's just always interesting as a teacher when people come and say nothing's happening, because in some level it's like, oh, thank God. You know? <laughs> We've been pushed around, pushed around, and finally nothing's happening. But it, like, it can be really difficult to deal when nothing's happening. We, real, we don't realize it until we get there how dependent we are on the intensity and the drama. That we are, More than anything, in terms of our grosser level conditioning, Is we're intensity junkies. You know, look at like we're always looking for interesting food and interesting entertainment. I look at when I look at the news, I notice what I look at. I'm looking for something intense, something provocative. I want something with somebody with power to do something stupid. I want to read about that. I go immediately to that. It's like, oh yeah, I knew you were stupid. Well, of course, there's a lot more to say about this, but I I thought it would be nice to leave the last 10 or 15 minutes just to hear what other people have to say. I mean, clearly, we've been swimming in this world of power and money and comforts and sensuality for a long time, all of us. And we've gotten pushed around, and we've made a lot of mistakes in the sense of reacting in ways that laid down more suffering for ourselves and probably others, so we can learn from each other, just, you know sharing a little bit about some of the attitudes you see around money, some of the fears, like how embarrassed we are to talk about money. It's just kind of interesting. It's almost like sex. It's like you don't talk about money. You know, it's like or it's uh seen as like unholy if you talk about money. And feel free also to ask any questions you have. I don't know if I'll have any answers, but um just yeah, just to get the conversation going, it'd be nice to speak up Loudly, so everyone in the room can hear you too. What thoughts do you have about money, about what you've learned? Money as a teacher, teaching us the reality of non-grasping, like how to be in the world like this, where money's a big deal, without being tight, without being afraid, without being dependent. What does that look like?
0: comes to mind? Yeah. I've, I've had, I, I've recognized more in the last uh, couple years, um, I have a niece who's a spendthrift and she's always getting her credit card, um, so she types it and I get, and I just, and I just have a fit, just have a fit, we got to pay this off, <laughs> and I think, well, how can, how can she do that, how can she not, and then I realized you why can't you do, the reason you can't do that is you are so in love with money. <laughs> you have you are such a grasper of money. You can never so you know, we're just like the yin and the yang of this thing. It's not like she's well, it is, she's terribly at fault, but <laughs> I have this huge bit, I have the I'm I have the huge opposite on yeah. and then I see this guy on Jeopardy who's Has who um, just uh, uses money as a tool has taught himself to have use money as a tool has no emotional attachment to it either way, and he makes himself lots of money doing that. And so you, I mean, we've got there's a whole other there's a whole other way to look at money that I had never considered.
1: Yeah, yeah, and then this is what's so cool about the spiritual perspective. Because otherwise, what we do with power and money will be just acting out our conditioning. And for those of us of a certain age, like I was raised by parents who were young during the Depression. So their, their parents' fear of not having, they were at that age where they were sponges and they absorbed that stinginess. And so I grew up in the vibration of my parents, you know, who were very much stingy. And, uh, and I, see that I have it in me, i picked it up from them, right? And so I'm shocked when I see people who aren't careful with money. It scares me. Because I've been practicing mindfulness, I really see, I don't act it out, hopefully, that much, but I feel that kind of existential fear when people aren't taking care of themselves. Because somehow I feel like I'll have to bail them out. You know, like, you've got to be responsible. Thanks for sharing. Other thoughts from your life that you want to share? So nobody's learned anything about money. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, please. Um, I'm just noticing for me, like, doubt is a really big hindrance when it comes to generosity or knowing what to do with money. Like, for myself, I'm in this kind of career transition right now where there's not there's like a gap between like, I was making enough money, hopefully I'll be making enough to cover my expenses soon, but what do I do in this meantime? And like, part of me is like, oh, well I should like, give extra, there's like some kind of belief, around, well, maybe the donna of that will bring back more rewards. And then I'm like, this other part is like, well no, like actually be wise and like, just give a little bit of donna and like wait till it's actually coming in. So just to say a lot of thinking and doubt is kind of like a confusing place to be. And that's why it's really good to be a student of karma, cause and effect, because it's a legitimate question, especially if it's coming from a deep and sincere place, like I want to take care of myself and I don't want to cause suffering for others, so should I give more or should I be frugal, right? Which is what I heard you saying. And the the thing is, it's more a matter of the quality of the mind than what you actually do, because it's the quality of the mind that plants seeds. And this is important because of that book, was it called The Secret? People know that book. But it was really, I think it's fair to say, about like establishing an aspiration or an intention in the mind, like to have more money flow back to me, or something like that. And it's a little bit like, we can use that with, okay, I'm going to be really generous, and then money will flow to me, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's how the universe Mm -hmm. works. But the way it actually works, and it's confusing if we sort of hold to some idea, but the way it actually works is, when we do something with intention, what's the impression? That's left. So you can observe. You could, like, when no one's looking, you could just, like, make sure you have a lot of loose change. And you just keep putting money in the ball, and you're really being completely present. This is sort of a joke, right? And you just find the place where it feels really good, like, that felt sort of good. The next quarter feels, oh, that yeah, feels, still feels good, a little better. And then at some point, it won't feel good anymore, right? And then you take a couple quarters out of the ball. <laughs> Because you're really looking like what when you when uh what when having done it leaves an impression in the heart that feels good, doesn't leave a negative or heavy trace, leaves a light, good feeling, both while you're doing it, after you've done it, whenever you think about it, even in anticipating doing doing it, it has a good flavor. So it's really about like um taking responsibility for the quality, like who you are when you're doing it, the quality of the mind that leaves a gift more than what the gift is. And so then, when you're in a good place, when you're in a fearful place, and you act from that fearful place, you're reinforcing that fear. Or when you're greedy, I'm going to give so things work better in my life, so you give a lot of money, but actually the way, where your mind was when you made that gift is, I really want stuff to come back to me, right? Then you're reinforcing that sense of scarcity. That's going to be a stronger quality in the mind because that's what the mind was practicing in that moment when it acted with intention. It was practicing scarcity. So scarcity has a deeper groove, a deeper impression in the mind. So how can we act? Like if you leave a donation tonight, uh, How can that be something that leaves a positive impression? I mean, it's okay to say makes you happy. How can you contribute in a way that makes you happy, that leads to happiness? But you have to be interested. You can't do it on autopilot. You actually have to be intimate with your experience, (coughs) and it will never be perfect. So we don't just presume we gave the right amount. We can continue to feel the reverberation of that act. We're interested. What's it setting in motion over time? Oh, that, I probably gave too much. Doesn't feel, I got a little aftertaste. You know, when I think about what I did, I kind of feel like I was trying to impress somebody, like even impressing myself, or it really came out of guilt. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. The practical example. Yeah, please. Do you think so? What I think I'm hearing you say is like we're cultivating this inner sense. Inner, um, and does that correlate with? I and mean, I can feel good, and then I become like broker and broker.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> but do you really feel good when you're getting broker and broker? <laughs> because one of the things about awareness is it doesn't. It doesn't work with boundaries. Like when we're really present with wisdom awareness, that it's a very, um, it's not conceptual. So we're not favoring anything over anything. And so our own sense of not having enough to pay the rent and to take care of our responsibilities, why isn't that in the mix in the decision of how much to give? Does that make sense? Yeah. I thought maybe it a rhetorical sort of. Yeah. No, no, you don't need to answer. But you know what I mean? It's sort of like... Because w- w- we often think of generosity as only going one way, me giving to you. But that sense of generosity and that sense of dancing with causes and conditions, with privilege, with power, with money, it's really a dance. And there's no right or wrong way to do that dance, except we want to be interested in what it's laying down in the heart. And, and we can be a recipient of our generosity or another person can be a recipient of our generosity. Even something like taxes, you know, instead of begrudging the taxes, and that leaves, what does that leave in my heart? So I learned over the years, like when I pay taxes, I pay attention I look. I really study. Like, if not earlier, you know, with each pay stub. But then, at the W two, at the end of the year, and I see. And then I, I really feel good. Like, no, no. I want you to have that. Please do something good with that, right? Because it's going there anyway. Why not make it a gift? As opposed to they stole it from me. <laughs> and do you do you think then if you're giving? about it internally, that your circumstances will change with that? Well, I know that's true, because I see it directly. I see that good feeling. So I'm literally a different person than if I had a different feeling. And then that good feeling is exactly what conditions the next moment of my life. That's how it actually works. So we can only affect this moment, right? So... I can directly see that I've affected this moment in a positive way. And I'll track it. So if I, I, because sometimes we think we're affecting the heart in a positive way, but we're just misleading ourselves. So we want to keep tracking it in case we're not seeing everything that's there, right? There's always the place for humility that we're not seeing everything. But yeah, we see directly that we're setting something good in motion. It's not, karma is not magical. Like, Santa Claus is watching us and he's keeping track and he'll make sure that we get our just desserts for however we're behaving. It's getting laid down moment by moment right in our heart who we're going to be, how we're going to be, right? And it has much more to do with knowing how to be happy regardless of conditions than manipulating the laws of the universe so we have more favorable conditions, that's what we give up when we realize how stressful it is. The image that's used in the tradition, and we'll have to end in a minute or so, but is uh, I think it might go all the way back to the Buddha's time, but I'm not sure, but it's been around this story about somebody uh walking around and constantly getting his foot chewed up because he steps on something sharp here and something sharp there, and he has this brilliant idea, I'm going to cover the world in a carpet. And then... I won't be banging up my foot. And, you know, a wise person says, well, you might consider just making a pair of shoes because it'd be a lot easier. And this is what we're doing by taking responsibility for our own mind and its capacity to do something beautiful no matter the conditions and to keep planting wholesome seeds that way seeds of kindness, seeds of letting go, renunciation, seeds of not harming. Right, we're making something beautiful that's not dependent on favorable what we would consider favorable circumstances because we know how to be okay, how to do to be free even when the conditions aren't so good. I think we need to end here, right, Phil? Ten o'clock. Really nice to be with everybody tonight. So I I encourage you to. Um, kind of pick these sort of topics up with your Dharma friends and when you gather in different groups, because it's really important to talk about these things, including you know, other things that are somewhat taboo, like sex and attraction, because it has so much to do with Dharma. The, the Dharma that the Buddha taught is about how to be free as a human being in a world with money, in a world with sexuality, in the world we actually inhabit.